Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 11th, and uh, there's lots of bad news, of course, in the newspaper, as there always is. There's some good news, too. It's always nice to find stories of justice, of people fighting for justice. Uh, last year, I did a show with a, a writer, a journalist, Patrick Strickland, about how the citizens of a small Arizona border town stood up to anti-immigrant militias and vigilantes. His book was called The Marauders, Standing Up to Vigilantes in the American Borderlands. And we have a similar book and a story today, only perhaps a little bit longer ago, and, and, and one that um, has a different background, The Fisherman and the Dragon, Fear, Greed, and a Fight for Justice on the Gulf Coast. Its author, uh, Kirk Wallace Johnson, is a well-known writer, political activist. He's joining us from Los Angeles. Kirk, congratulations on the book. It's just out this week. Um, are you also somebody particularly intrigued and excited by narratives of justice? Is that why you chose to write this book? Yeah, I think, you know, I look for, I always look for stories that have some kind of thrilling core to them, but that point to something hopefully more profound, that some larger social issue that people are wrestling with. I, I, I don't, it's weird because I'm often put like in true crime categories, but I don't, I always kind of bridle against that because I don't, I'm not just writing about like a murder or something like that. It's a, it, it has to be a story that, that tries to tackle something bigger. In an America, Kirk, again, you don't need me to tell you this, divided, lots of anti-immigrant bias, the potential for violence. Um, what do you think this story um has to tell us about contemporary America. And, and perhaps, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, to be fair, uh, rather than talking about lessons, let's talk about the story itself of the fisherman and the dragon. Perhaps you might summarize. It's not a novel, but perhaps don't give away all your best secrets because we want people to read the book. Sure. Well, you know, it really starts shortly after the fall of Saigon in 75, when the United States decided to resettle hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese refugees. At the time, the American public wasn't very excited about this. Um, only one in three supported it, but President Ford said, tough, we owe it to these people, we're gonna get them out. And among the first wave of resettled refugees, um, the, the two biggest communities uh, landed in, in Southern California and in Texas along the Gulf Coast. The Texas community was there in large part because they were, uh, the climate was familiar to them, but also a lot of them had been fishermen, like shrimpers and crabbers back home before the war, you know, cost them their country. And you got to remember the time period. So like the late 70s, it's like, uh, you know, it's the great inflation. It's spiking fuel prices, there's, you know, lines, gas queues, there's, and there's a general sense uh, of, of economic despair. 
Um, and and when you add on top of that, that the there had been like kind of a historic few seasons out on the water where the white shrimpers who usually dominated this industry, they just weren't having a very good run of things. Um, and so at first, when the refugees got there, the, the whites were quite happy and they unloaded these decrepit boats on the refugees for five times their worth, you know, kind of hoping to uh, play them for suckers. But the Vietnamese proceeded to fix those boats up. They used their family members as deckhands. They ate the fish that white people consider junk fish in order to cut down on costs. And they loaned each other money when the banks win. And all of which to say is that within a couple of years, a few years of arriving, the Vietnamese were becoming such a force at fishing along that coastline that the whites ran to the Texas governor and they begged for a refugee ban. And when that failed, uh, the Ku Klux Klan entered the fray and what proceeded was a pretty ghastly campaign of, of violence and harassment and intimidation where Vietnamese boats were torched, Vietnamese homes were firebombed. There were Klan rallies with a thousand people, most of them not Klansmen, but just sympathizing or putting their voices behind the Klan, um, where the Vietnamese were threatened and given 90 days to get off that coast or else face blood. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of twists and turns to, to what happened next, but but this is a pretty extraordinary story where the, the Vietnamese, having lost everything, got here and then soon found themselves in the crosshair of this sort of racist backlash. What were the politics, Kirk, of this? Presumably most of the Vietnamese um, immigrants were refugees themselves from communism. Was there a political angle to this as well? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting point. So, and there's, I think there's a religious angle too, because the, the vast majority of the, the first wave of Vietnamese were, were Catholic, um, and which I think surprised a lot of the white Texans. Um, but there was uh, a kind of low grade paranoia and xenophobia that that these weren't refugees to be trusted that there might secretly be communists or Viet Cong in their in their midst um, this was this is a refrain that pops up with almost every refugee community that that we bring out I, I worked intensely to help a lot of my Iraqi colleagues get out um, and we've been hearing similar things with the Afghans um, but the yeah, one by the way, to jump in, uh, we did a show earlier this week with Major Tom Schumann and Zainola Zaki on um, their new book, Always Faithful. And in part, it's a story of how Zainola Zaki, as an Afghan refugee, brought his family to San Antonio. And we've also done some shows about the history of anti-immigrant and racist um, racism in San Antonio. So viewers of the show are familiar with what you're talking about and and it's i mean ironically san antonio is where the 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 hero of the vietnamese hero of the book colonel nam van nguyen first was resettled after commanding thousands of troops and fighting for 22 years being injured several times he he ended up working as a gas station attendant at an exxon uh station in san antonio for for several years until he was able to save up enough money to buy a fish house 
in this little Galveston Bay town of Seabrook. And he was hoping for a, a chance at some peace and quiet, finally, uh, when all of this clan stuff uh, started. Kirk, um, there's a couple of things. In the Marauders book uh, by Strickland, it's clear that there's not, uh, there's very little, if any, uh, legal police uh, protection for immigrants. Did we see in, in, in the case uh, of, of the fisherman and the dragon, did we see the same withdrawal of the police and of the state? And does that imply at least an, a, an implicit support for the whites? It's a great question. Um, there was a, a legitimate mistrust of the police by the newly resettled Vietnamese um, in, in one crucial moment in the book, uh, a Vietnamese, 18-year-old Vietnamese crabber who had just shot and killed a, a white crabber who had slashed him across the chest after a month of harassment, he wanted to turn himself in, but he was convinced to drive out of town and turn himself in somewhere else because he, they, everyone was worried that the Ku Klux Klan had, had infiltrated the local police force. That, that might sound a little fantastical if, if not for the fact that just a couple of years earlier, there was a kind of explosive photo series of Houston and Galveston Bay police and sheriff's officers uh, rolling around in their squad cars with their police uniforms on, but with, with clan hoods over uh, on top, concealing their identity. So, um, you know, I talked to, so there's, you have that on one side where there's a mistrust and a lot of them ended up, the Vietnamese ended up confiding and telling what was happening to them to their Catholic priest. Uh, and so I found one priest who had kind of kept a, a catalog of all the things that were, were was happening to uh, his parishioners. But on the other side, there was, you know, I spent a lot of time with the police chief he was 29 at the time. He had just been made police chief in the town where things really reached a fever pitch. And this guy was horrified by the Klan present. He presence. He didn't even understand that they were in town there, um, and was doing everything he could to try to keep the peace. Uh, and you know, bringing members of, of each side of the community together to try to make them listen to each other uh, instead of, you know threatening and i should say the threats were only going one way here from from the whites to the vietnamese but, you talk kirk about the whites was mm -hmm. this a phalanx i mean were there white dissidents were there white people in the community who were ashamed who were opposed to this overt racism and particularly to the clan i didn't even realize perhaps this reflects my own naivety i didn't realize how overt and open the the clan was in the in the late 1970s yeah they were in a period of real resurgence back then um particularly in texas or was this throughout the south honestly it was throughout the whole country but texas in particular there's a there's a great book called bring the war home by kathleen Ballou that that she writes pretty persuasively about how the end of the vietnam war revitalized the white power movement in america in part because a lot of veterans were angry at their government for for what they saw as sort of giving up and losing the war um but no there were you know it's true i i there this was not some monolithic group um and so the first 
moment when the Klan enters this conflict between white crabbers and, and Vietnamese, the Grand Dragon of the Klan, Louis Beam, had openly threatened that he was going to come to this small town and, and lead a march. And this prompted a town of sea drift of, of about a thousand people uh, to gather in kind of an emergency public meeting all in the in the school gymnasium where they unilaterally passed a resolution telling the Klan essentially to buzz off, that they didn't want the Klan to come to town. I hope they use stronger language, Kirk. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, the, the Texans are, uh, I, I let them speak for themselves in the book, but uh, they've got a way with words. But they, but they, they resolutely sent this message to the Klan, which, you know, the, the Grand Dragon of the Klan loved this because it just created national news and he, he ignored it and uh, arrived to town to find a bank of news crews waiting for him. But, but there were plenty of people that were acting out of conscience and, and who were embarrassed by this. Um, you know, now, 40 years later, I mean, I, I met with so many of the people at the heart of this story and now they all disavow the clan and say they never would have joined. They never joined. They weren't really clan, but then, you know, they were still at these rallies surrounded by people chanting white power in, in robes and hoods. So, um, uh, I, you know, they might call it a marriage of convenience, but there is some kind of uh, self-deception going on. And, and what was the reaction, Kirk, of other communities? Of course, when one thinks about the borderlands, um, one thinks of Hispanic Americans. We've done a number of shows about that, and they were central in the Marauders. Um, did this break down in racial categories? What was the response of African Americans and Hispanics in particular, and indeed Native Americans, to the reappearance of the Klan and this racial war against the Vietnamese? Yeah, there was there was one there was one key scene that uh, you know I mentioned the Grand Dragon threatening to come for a march on the town and and. One of my main sources, um, who had himself participated in multiple acts of arson against the Vietnamese, um, told me that the the night before the Klan was set to to arrive, his Hispanic neighbor was frantically packing all of his stuff up in the uh, in the back of the the family station wagon, and. The white guy asks his Hispanic neighbor, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? And, and the neighbor was obviously terrified of the Klan coming. And the white guy told me this just kind of chuckling. He thought that was the funniest thing in the world. But, you know, I think there's there were so many instances where um, the people deploying the Klan and the, the, the history and the symbols of the Klan um explicitly told me like look we were doing this to get attention uh no one else was listening to us and so we did it the old-fashioned way with the kkk um but then they kind of professed surprise that anyone might be frightened by them that the stage did, you know, did they achieve that did did the national press national television come down was it reported in the new york times on 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 the on the television networks, which in the 1970s were dominant? Yes. I mean, Walter Cronkite covered this. Um, the, this was this ran regularly in the Times. And I mean, it was a the after the first major Klan rally, the, the chief organizer of it 
uh, was quoted by an LA Times reporter. At, you know, he's laughing the day after he said that the rally cost us 5,000 bucks, but we got a million dollars worth of free publicity. Um, so there was a kind of strange sort of parasitism or symbiosis, however you want to view it, where I think the head of the clan recognized that by rattling his saber, by saying these odious things, um, he would get national press attention the press seems to have a thrill or a love for not love, but they're attracted to the kind of terrifying imagery of these dudes in robes. I mean, there were TV correspondents back then saying, I don't, we don't even really want to be here. Sometimes we wrestle with why we're coming here. We're just giving them a platform. And then every time there was press coverage, there would be new members joining the clan and who were paying dues, which I, I mean, I'm arguing was one of the, the main reasons why the Grand Dragon of the clan was was pursuing all of this. Um, I know that uh, George Clooney is, or George Clooney's production company has bought the rights to the movie of this. One can't help thinking about Forrest Gump, uh, obviously a very different story, but in a similar time and also about... Uh, uh, fishermen in the Gulf. Are, are there any connections with Forrest Gump? Did you think of this in the writing of the book? Uh, it's funny because I think the I think the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company is is headquartered right near Galveston Bay. Uh, I, I might be I might be wrong about that. Um, yeah, you know it's hard it's hard not to see that that connection. Um, it's a there's a kind of romanticized depiction of what Gulf shrimping. Yeah, and I mean, Forrest like, Gump, as much as anything, created that r romantic vision. Yeah, and when in fact, I mean, you know, talking about Galveston Bay, there's, there's, you know, the hundreds of of miles of pipeline running across the the, the seabed. The thing is completely throttled by petrochemical plants, constant tanker collisions where yeah. these dangerous chemicals are leaking into the bays and killing off the aquatic life. So, I mean, you know, I see that Forrest Gump stuff with Lieutenant Dan and all of that, and then I, I square that off with, you know, the, the shrimper, the 70-year-old shrimper telling me about the channel that he shrimps in where he has to wrap his face up in a bandana because the stench from the chemicals is so strong yeah and there must be um kirk an environmental angle to this too um particularly today given the impact of global warming on an area it was already brutally hot even before global warming yeah you know i when i first started reporting out the book i i thought it was going to be uh you know a spotlight of a of a forgotten episode of, of white supremacy in America. But then I, I quickly realized that, you know, for all the discussion of this being a, a turf war, um, no one was really paying any attention to the turf itself. And it's a, it's a devastating story. I mean, this, these bays sustained fishing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and they're, they're under constant attack by the petrochemical industry. As you said, global warming has is producing so much rainfall now along the coast that the salinity levels are being altered. 
all the fresh water from the rivers that feed those bays are being impounded and, and given to the plants, which then receive permits to discharge the water with all this toxic stuff in it. And so in some ways, you know, it's like, this was a, this is a story about a way of life that was under attack on all fronts. I mean, we poured concrete over all the estuaries for hotels and parking lots. Um, all of these huge structural forces that were killing off this way of life. And they looked at this tiny group of immigrants, of refugees, and they pointed a finger and they said, let's get rid of them and everything will be great again. And right. Uh, I mean, to, I mean, we've done a number of shows about anti-immigrant vitriol in America. Uh, one with, for example, with Roya Hakekian, an Iranian immigrant who's written a beginner's guide to America. I don't want to defend these people, but um, their way of life, as you say, was being undermined. And I'm assuming that industry, large industry, which was mostly responsible for this, they stayed out of this fight. They maintain innocence and impartiality. Was there any corporate involvement in this confrontation, Kurt? Well, I think you're right that they, they stayed out of it, but they beyond that, they they were the, the main employers in most of these towns along the coastline. So a lot of these shrimpers and crabbers, when their catches started coming up light, they would go to work at these petrochemical plants in the off season. I should say this is now called the cancer belt. People there have something like 160 times the cancer rate as the rest of the country. I, yeah. I got to the point that I could tell who worked at, at what company based on the type of cancer they had. Um, and it, But the, the whole book really builds up to this huge, you know, battle between Diane Wilson, this the lone female shrimper on that coastline who kept telling her male colleagues, look, it's not the Vietnamese. They're not the problem. The problem's the plant. And for 30 years, she she has waged this lonely battle against the plants, which just uh, resulted a couple of years ago in a, a history-making settlement, um, largest ever uh, under the Clean Water Act. Um, so it ends well, in a way, um, Kirk. Should this, should this make us slightly op more optimistic about American potential to integrate immigrants. I, I talked earlier about um, uh, Zanula Zaki as an Afghan immigrant now coming to San Antonio. Um, does it suggest that America is capable of getting beyond this violent hostility towards immigrants, and particularly immigrants from wars which were caused by America, whether it's Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan? You're a veteran of the Iraq war. Yeah, I was uh, USAID's uh, head of reconstruction in Fallujah. Um, the, yeah, you know, this can be a, there's some bleak dimensions to this story, but the truth is that there are a number of, I found hopeful and inspiring episodes where, you know, the people that you would least expect, you know, an all white jury in a super conservative town that, that acquitted a young Vietnamese uh, crabber on uh, on grounds of lawful self-defense of killing that white crabber. Um, this woman, Diane Wilson, what she's done through this meticulous battle um, against the plants. Um, you know, this is this community. It's crazy that we have to say these things uh, and remind people of this. But there's been this kind of idiotic 
story told by the extreme right in this country that anyone who doesn't look like you or anyone immigrating to this country, they're just coming here because they, they want to steal your jobs. They want a piece, your piece of the American pie. And I feel like I, it's baffling to have to say this, but nobody wants to become a refugee. None of us would want to lose the, our homeland where our, our ancestors are buried, where, what produced us, what made us who we are. With all love to the Texas Gulf Coast, the Vietnamese didn't want to be there, but they, they refused to go on welfare. They, they were quite adamant about that. And they said, okay, we're going to do what we know how to do, which is to fish. And so they did everything you could ask of a, of a, a community of refugees resettled here under duress. And they, you know. So in a way, the book is um, a spirited narrative about um, the, an innovative immigrant community. We did a show with Erica Sanchez, whose parents came to the United States in the boot of a car. Um, on why risk-taking, rebellious immigrants capture the spirit of what it should be to be a 21st century American. She has a best-selling book, Crying in the Bathroom. Mm -hmm. Her parents came from Mexico. Um, does your book make that point as well, at least implicitly, about the innovation at the heart of immigrant communities like the Vietnamese? I, I think the book is, is a, a pretty full-throated look what they did here was something incredible because they they stood their ground against a campaign of terror not by fighting back with weapons but by but by you know putting their trust in the US constitution and i in doing so i think that community the vietnamese community did a service for for all for future generations of refugees because if they didn't the clan would have been emboldened to replicate this in any town and in any industry across the country. I think I sometimes um, I sometimes wrestle with this because there's so many discussions of refugees where they, in trying to convince white people that they're, they're, it's a good investment or a good bet, and I know you're not doing this, but they'll, they'll point to, you know, Steve Jobs' mom was a Syrian. They point to Sergey Brin of Google and, Maybe one of these will do another Google, create another Google for us. And part of me, I, I just come at it from a perspective of, look, these people, their country was devastated by an idiotic war that we were we were fighting. They were the littlest people amongst um, amongst us, and they were floating in the ocean. I don't care if they start Google or not. We just owe them. So it comes down to a more basic uh, moral premise than that. I don't, you know, and you would just on one other point that you had asked, like, this is, there's some heavy stuff in this book. Um, it ends with some incredibly inspiring and optimistic um, individuals and what happened to them. But, you know, President Obama always used to, to mention this, this line of Martin Luther King's that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And a lot of people... A lot of white people like hearing that, I think. But I, I think I'm a little bit more cynical than him. I don't think it necessarily bends towards justice. I think in the United States, it's always a battle between these opposing sides. And sometimes people give up and they don't wanna, they don't wanna fight anymore or they succumb to nihilism or, or irony or whatever. Um, and so in this case, I wanted to spotlight people that, that recognize that 
the country stood for for more than just protecting these white fishermen that these these newcomers deserted deserved a, a shot too your work um this is i think is your third book your your first book was the 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 feather the feather thief i think was a bestseller uh to be a friend is fatal a book about the hostility towards iraqi refugees but uh, you've also done a lot of work on other casualties, American casualties of war. We did a show recently with Jason Kander, um, an ex-politician, actually a friend of Obama. He has a new book. Uh, he's an ex-military uh, 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 guy in Iraq, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. I know that, um, Kirk, you've done a lot of work on the PTSD front. The casualties of American wars over the last 50 years aren't just the Vietnamese or the Iraqis or the Afghans, although they're tremendously important, but also many of the American soldiers in these wars themselves. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, without question. Um, I mean, several of the the individuals in this book, um, the white shrimpers were themselves veterans of the Vietnam War. Um, my own dad died of of cancer that was spurred in part um, by his exposure to Agent Orange during the war, um, during his deployment to Vietnam. Uh, so I'm, you know, I don't, I don't make light of any of that. This was a, this is a raw deal for everyone involved. Um, I'm just looking at these comments that it, there's, there's one that it's, I have to just grin when I see it because this, I, I saw this. Oh, one. this is a comment from live people watching. Yeah. Um, there's a guy who's who's claiming that the the U.S. government gave these Vietnamese shrimp boats, basically, that they don't follow the regulations. Um, it's it's amazing to me that, uh, you know, we're 40 years out of this and this is still wheeled out like gospel truth among so many of the white fishermen on this coastline, um, despite there's been decades of studies of Congress people instructing their staff to, yeah, the, here comes the interest rate interest loans as well. There are these myths that persist that this was all part of a government conspiracy to drive the whites out of this industry. And it's, it's like the myth that won't die. The state government, local governments, senators, congressmen, journalists, federal government, they've all produced report after report after report um, explaining that no... We're not giving free loans. We're not giving free things to the Vietnamese. Why this was so difficult for, I think, the white community to understand was the Vietnamese didn't have access to any of these loans. They weren't eligible for SBA loans. But what they did have access to was something called the Hui, H-U-I, which is a, a like, I don't know if it counts as ancient, but it's a, a long-standing uh, rotating loan club system where everyone pulls in their money it's governed strictly by trust and all the members of this club pull in their money into this into this rotating loan club and you can draw from it whenever you want but the one who draws first has to pay the highest interest and, and on and on and so this allowed vietnamese that didn't have access to lines of credit from the banks to almost overnight get enough money to put you know put down for a new trawler or for a new for a you know a trailer to live in and to the eternal confusion of the white community which you know like it or not they're not sharing or loaning money with each other in this way they just 
they couldn't understand that and they just assumed that this was all part of some some secret plot uh to make these vietnamese rich at their expense but it's it doesn't you know i i've been repeating this and i'm the last of hundreds to try to explain this and it just doesn't get through kirk what, what, over the last three years since covid there's been manifestation of all sorts of anti-asian racism of one kind or another um what does your book um the fisherman and the dragon suggest about anti-asian racism and discrimination and hostility uh that can help us in the america of 2022 well like uh particularly of of the covid cam- pandemic still seems to incite racism and even the people who are on your screen right now yeah um you know there's i i, I don't remember the exact stat but it was it was something like a 1500% increase from the past year just in anti-asian in uh violence in the united states uh during the pandemic uh i think this book i think highlights that that's not a new thing um you know i think a lot of the vietnamese i spoke to at some point would throw their their arms up and say what do you guys want from us do you want us to not work and not do anything and then you'll yell at us for taking welfare or do you want us to work uh but what only in an industry where there are no white people i mean how are we supposed to do this here um you know i think there's a a never ending litany of of episodes and chapters in this country of of the country facing downtimes and somebody whips them up into to blaming the weakest people amongst us the refugees coming here with nothing or with little uh and and blaming them for all the problems uh and i, I you know i don't know what to say other than it's 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 like the weed that can never be uprooted Well, that's an interesting, it's a very interesting, and indeed, as you suggest, Kirk, ultimately an uplifting story, The Fisherman and the Dragon, Kirk Wallace Johnson's new book by uh, the best-selling author of The Feather Thief. Congratulations, Kirk. It obviously required a great deal of time, energy, time spent on the Gulf Coast, probably not good for your own personal health. Uh, So congratulations on the book. Uh, What else are you reading these days, Kirk? Anything good? Uh, what am I reading? Man, there's, uh, I'm waiting for my, my kids to, to get back from, uh, get back to school, but on my shelf right now that are half or a third or a quarter red, um, let's see, Kunzru's Red Pill, Spies in the Congo, Supreme Inequality, William Dalrymple's The Anarchy. Yeah, we had William Dalrymple on the show. That's a great book. Yeah, it really is. Um, uh, Lindsay Borgen's Tree Thieves. That's a good one. Yeah, we had Tower on as well. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm trying to skip past all of the books on the Ku Klux Klan that are on my wall right now. But um, but yeah, once uh, once I, I have a moment of calm, I'll hopefully dial up my, my reading again. Excellent. Uh-